Welcome to the Wellspring Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wellspring Church in Hudsonville, Michigan. We pray you are blessed as you listen to this teaching from God's Word. Well, this morning we are finishing up our first and second Peter series. We're at the end of chapter three of Second Peter. When I was trying to find out which uh, seminary the Lord wanted me to go to to prepare for the ministry, one of my friends uh, suggested that I visit Dallas Theological Seminary. He had went there, he had a good experience, and he had set me up with a, uh, a, a friend of his, a newly married couple of his that lived down there. He said I could stay with them for a couple nights while I was checking out the seminary. And so I didn't know them, hadn't spoken with them beforehand, um, flew to Dallas, got in the rental car, and in those days used the old map, right, paper map, and drove to uh, their house. Again, a strange house, strange neighborhood, never been to Dallas before in my life. Hadn't traveled far from my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, to be honest with you at the time. Uh, A bit nervous, went to the door, rung the doorbell. Um, This couple came to the door, friendly couple opened the door, and I introduced myself to them, and they they were expecting me. They um, welcomed me. I I thanked them for the generosity and being able to allow to stay with them so I didn't have to pay for a hotel room. And we were having small talk there in the foyer or entryway of the house, and all of a sudden, we, we just, enough had been said, and enough greetings and introductions had been said, and the, 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 the conversation kind of waned, and the problem was they were standing there, and they weren't inviting me further into the house. They weren't uh, grabbing my bags and taking me to my room. It was just, we were just, it, just this kind of awkward little bit of moment, and I'm trying to figure out what, what else needs to be done before I can actually enter their house, uh, and so I'm just kind of, you know, I'm hauling a little bit, and all of a sudden, I see... Now, to the left of me on the, on the ground, there's this basket. It's, it, was, it looked like a bread basket, to be honest with you. But it was a basket and was full of white tube socks. Uh, and now this was 25 plus years ago. Uh, so this was before, you know, everybody got into taking their shoes off in, in the house, at least in the circles that I ran. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd ever heard of taking your shoes off before you go into a house. But, so it took me a minute to realize that this basket of white tube socks uh, was, was a communication. <laughs> it was a, hey, heads up, um, take your shoes off. Uh, and presumably, check your socks to see if they're dirty, because if they are, there's a clean pair here you can change. I don't, I don't know. And now I know we, we do this now, my family, we take our shoes off now. I know it's cut on here, but at the time, I, I had no idea, and it took me a minute to realize it, so I did. I, I took my shoes off, and then of course, they, they welcomed me in, and as I walked in the house, this house was pristine. I mean, I remember that the, the carpet was just pure white. The walls were white. There was hardly a picture put up on the, on the wall. Everything was just perfect, um, and I reflect on that because, actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, discredit their, their, their generosity, but to be honest with you, it kind of ruined their ability to really be inviting towards me because the whole time the whole two days and two nights that I stayed with them I was just scared to death I was going to mess something up everything was perfect everything was in its place everything uh, was just pristine and and, and clean and I thought about that recently uh, not recently but down through the years and I thought to myself, you know, I never want to get to the place to where I'm so concerned uh, with material things. 
so concerned with keeping things perfect and nice. I'm a person, I like cleanliness, I like orderliness, but I never wanted to let it get in my way of being able to offer true hospitality to people, to really make people feel welcomed. This couple, they didn't intend to do it, but what they communicated is that their house and the order and the cleanliness of their house was more important than making me feel comfortable embracing me and building a relationship with me. A house that it's going to burn one day, carpet that's going to be destroyed one day. It's made me realize the importance of living in such a manner that we remember those things that are eternal in nature and not allow those things that are internal in nature to become less important than those things that are temporal uh, in nature. nature. So last week, we, we saw where Peter said that there's two things that's going to happen in the future. Uh, The first thing is that Jesus is going to come back, and the second is that everything's going to be destroyed, that the earth and the atmosphere are going to be destroyed, that all material things are going to end and be destroyed. And today, he makes a clear transition in verse 11 from introducing that concept and that idea to saying, okay, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, he's coming as father, he's coming as judge, in light of the fact that he's coming and all this physical world and the atmosphere and everything in it is going to be destroyed, how ought we to live in light of that fact? He says in verse 11 there at the beginning, since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people, what kind of people ought we to be? In light of the fact that Jesus is coming, in light of the fact that everything material is going to be destroyed, how should we as Christians live? How does that knowledge about the future affect our present decisions and the life that we live? And then he answers that question with the end, at the end of verse 11, you ought to live holy in godly lives. In light of the fact that Jesus is coming, in light of the fact that all things are going to be destroyed, you ought to live holy and godly lives. To be godly means to emulate the holiness of God, the holy characteristics of God. Pursue Christ-likeness. Christ is our example. He was fully God. He came, lived on the earth, demonstrated what it looks like to live with an eternal perspective recognizing that this world is temporal, recognizing that the things of it is temporal, living with an eternal perspective. He's our example. Thus, we can say, Peter's saying, you ought to pursue Christ's likeness. Now, if you're like me, you, you think, well, that's an impossible task. To live like Christ is an impossible task. If you know yourself very well, uh, you know that we're sinful people. We're frail people. We're weak people. And to live like Christ seems, again, like an impossible task. But remember what Peter told us in the first chapter of verse 3 of Second Peter, where he wrote this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. His power that indwells us through the power of the Spirit is everything we need to pursue a godly life. So in other words, the call to live a godly and holy life is not a call to be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, do it with our own tenacity and discipline, 
It's the call to allow or yield to the Spirit of God that indwells us to pursue holiness and godliness, to mold us, to make us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. So our dependency is not on ourselves. Our dependency and confidence is not in our own ability to do this. Our dependency and confidence is in the Spirit's power to do it in and through us. And yet, at the same time, we must yield to the Spirit. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.30 that we are not to grieve the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, that we are not to quench the Spirit. In other words, you can be a Christian who grieves and quenches the Spirit. You don't lock arms with the Spirit to do this. And so the exhortation here that Peter says is that in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, in light of the fact that everything is going to be destroyed, that we are to yield to the power of the Spirit that indwells us, that gives us the ability to become more and more like Christ. The Spirit will empower us, the Bible says, to illuminate the the, the text of Scripture, to speak to us through Scripture, and yet we have to pick up the Bible and read it. God has given us church to help us, to encourage us, to grow us, to help us be spiritually mature and grow in our spirituality to become like Christ, but you must attend it. So there is an agreement that you must have with the Spirit of God that lives in you to take advantage, to tap into, to lock arms with Him and His presence and His power in your life. And so Peter says here that In light of the fact of what we know about the future, we are to live lives of holiness, partnering with the Holy Spirit to empower us to live holy lives. He then writes in verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. We looked at that last week. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven, and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So here he reminds us that everything is going to be destroyed, and he says that we are to look forward to a day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness, where holiness will dwell. So in other words, we are to have an attitude or a mindset that has an eternal perspective. That we are to look forward to a day, to look ahead and anticipation for a day in the future that's guaranteed to happen. And it's a picture of our new heavenly dwelling place where righteousness and holiness reign. And so in other words, what we are supposed to do today is to reflect what it's going to look like tomorrow. Today, we are to start working on ourselves in order that we reflect what our new heaven is going to look like, what the new earth is going to look like, where righteousness and holiness and truth and justice prevail. The point Peter is making here is that Christians should be, have a very different outlook on life than non-believers. Unbelievers are focused on today. As far as they know, this is it. They have a very temple perspective. Get all we can, do all we can, experience all we can. Christians have a very different perspective, or they should, because they know that this isn't it, that this is very temporal in nature. Christians are to have an eternal perspective to prepare for another home, another life where righteousness and holiness reign, to prepare for that trip that we're all going to take those who are in Christ Jesus to another land. 
a newly created earth, a newly created heaven to make in decisions today in anticipation of tomorrow in regards to what the future holds. This is a very tried example, but I think it's applicable. Many of you are going on spring break next week. Uh, many of you are going to where the sun shines, brighter and more intense. And you can't fool me. I know you've already thought about it this morning because you think about it every day you wake up. Uh, and you think about it throughout the day. Uh, and some of you are, are watching what you eat. Uh, and the reason is because you want to be able to fit into your bathing suit. Uh, and some of you are skimping right now. You're not eating out that much. You're, you're, you're saving your money. Why? So you will have more money to spend when you get to the Sunshine State or wherever you're going. Somewhere warm, I know it is. You're making decisions today in anticipation for this trip you're taking. Now, I, on the other hand, the Gibsons were home. We're staying here this, this year. So we're not preparing. I, I, never, I hardly ever think of spring break until you tell me you're going and then I get jealous. <laughs> but I'm not making decisions based. I'm eating whatever I want. I don't need to worry about that. It's, but you, on the other hand, again, you're making decisions based on the anticipation of the future. And that's what Peter is saying is we are to live in anticipation of heaven, looking forward and preparing for it. To live in light of the fact that we're going to a place where, uh, this is maybe cheesy, but the sun, S-O-N, is shining more intensely and brightly. To emulate him to live in light of eternity. Now beginning in verse 14, he's going to give us no less than four characteristics of a person that's living with an eternal perspective. Describing what it looks like to live with an eternal perspective, with knowledge about the future, that Jesus is coming, that this earth is going to be destroyed, and that we are going to have an eternal dwelling place where righteousness and holiness reign. The first thing he says in verse 14 is this. So, there, then, so then, in light of this, in light of this future, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. There he says three things, describes it three different ways. It's the same thing. He's saying one thing, three different ways for emphasis sake. To be spotless is to be blameless. To be blameless is to be spotless. To be spotless and to be blameless is to be at peace with him. He's not saying to be sinless. That's impossible. But he's saying to be a redeemed child of God, to be saved, to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, to be found at peace with him when he returns, to be ready for him, to greet him with joy and not dread, is to be found at peace with him. How do you have peace with him? You must place your faith in him. You must make him your Lord. You must seek to pursue holiness and righteousness. Because remember what Peter told us, that salvation in 1 Peter 1, he said salvation isn't just justification, it's also sanctification. That we are being saved. That the sanctification will confirm the salvation. That the sanctification will confirm that we're truly justified. That a person who is truly redeemed is being redeemed holistically. Is being transformed in his likeness. 
And a person who's being transformed as a likeness is a person that's locked arms with the Spirit, tapping in the Spirit's ability to pursue holy and godly lives. So I think the best way to put it is what Peter is saying. The person that is living with an eternal perspective is pursuing holiness, pursuing holiness. So to confirm their own salvation, all of us struggle with sin. But the important part is, are we struggling? Are we staying in the fight? Are we confirming that we are true children of God, spirit-baptized, spirit-filled, true children of God, that the Spirit is working on us and molding us and making us more like Christ because that's the nature of a true believer of Christ. Peter says you're not going to a place where sin reigns. You're going to a place where righteousness dwells, so start preparing for it now. And the first and basic way to do that is to place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and make him the Lord of your life. And throughout your life, as Paul says, examine your own life to make sure of your calling, confirm your salvation, confirm that the Spirit of God is living and dwelling in you and prompting you towards a holy life pursuit holiness. Again, a tried example, but using this example of spring break, I remember in college when I was going to go to Florida, and I knew that the sun was much more intense than it was in my hometown in Ohio, and so what I started doing is going to a tanning bed, because I thought, and I don't know if it's true, but I thought if I could get a baseline tan, it would prepare my skin to be able to experience the intensity of the sun that I was going to face down in Florida. There's some righteousness now. There's some holiness in this world. There's evidences of that. But the intensity of righteousness and holiness is, 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 is much that we will expend in heaven is, is intense. It's, it's complete. It's fulfilled. It's all-encompassing. Peter is saying, start reflecting it now, preparing for it now. Pursue holiness now. The second thing that he says is indicative of a person who's living with an eternal perspective in light of the fact of what the future holds It's found there in the beginning of verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. To bear in mind means that you keep it on the forefront of your mind. What does he want us to keep on the forefront of his mind? He wants us to keep in the forefront of his mind what he told us in verse 9, where he said that the reason that Christ has not come back yet is because he's being patient with unbelievers that he knows that everyone's not ready to receive him as king when he comes back. And so out of his love for humanity, he hasn't come back yet so that as many as possible would receive him as their savior and be saved. And so that's what Peter is saying, that a person who is living with an eternal perspective will bear in mind that the reason that the Lord hasn't come back yet is because he is being patient with us, being patient with the unbeliever, being patient with those who reject Christ in order that they might be prepared, that they might repent, place their faith in him, and be prepared for when he does. Why is that? Why does he want us to remember and bear this in mind? Two reasons. The first is, again, to confirm our calling, our true salvation, so that we can be confident when he comes. But the second is to remember what he said before. Time is short. People need Jesus. you got to understand, Peter's heartbeat is evangelism. His heartbeat is to win souls for Christ. He really does believe that those who deny Christ, that those who reject the clear gospel, the offer of the gospel, he really believes that they're going to spend eternity lost. 
that they are going to spend eternity spiritually dead, that they are going to spend eternity without their creator, without God. He really believes this. And he desires to see as many come into the kingdom as possible. And he wants us to feel the same way. He wants us to feel the same urgency that in light of the fact that Jesus is coming as father and judge, in light of the fact that this world is going to be destroyed, in light of the fact that the souls of men will never die, in light of the fact that only those who place their faith in Christ, that only those, and, and those rather those who reject the gospel message will end up in eternally lost. In light of that fact, always keep it in mind that time is short. Confirm your own salvation by living a holy and righteous life, but also promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the second thing to play our part in the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The person who is truly a Christian that recognizes that and really believes the words of Scripture and really believes that Jesus is coming back and really believes that, uh, that the earth will be destroyed and that every man will, and woman will give an account before God. A Christian who really believes that there is a judgment seat for, for Christians and non-believers. A Christian who really believes that stuff will work to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ to support the evangelization of the world so that more and more people can come to faith in Christ. The third is found in the rest of verse 15 through verse 17, which reads this. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all these letters, speaking in them of things, of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. There in verse 16, it's fascinating, isn't it, that Peter says that there are some hard-to-understand hard to things. Hard-to-understand things in Paul's letters. So hard-to-understand things in Scripture. I think that's fascinating. He admits that there are some things that Scripture proclaims that are hard to understand. That there are even things that, that's, that's hard to swallow that are socially unacceptable in our day and time. He admits that. Now, contextually, he seems to be referring particularly to Paul's writings regarding end times, but it certainly doesn't exclude uh, the other things in Scripture that are just difficult to understand, to comprehend, to swallow. And his warning there is that Satan will use people to take these hard things in Scripture and to attack a Christian's faith and to keep an unbeliever from faith by them. So people will, uh, so unbelievers will take things in Scripture and say, look at this, this says this. Can, can this really be true? Is that really indicative of a loving God? Or look at this, doesn't this seem to contradict this with this? And they'll take it and they'll, and Satan will use them to try to strip the faith of a Christian away or to keep a true Christian from true faith. Stripping them from their faith in Scripture. I have a, a seminary friend who was in the same degree I was, preparing for ministry, 
claimed Jesus as his Lord, believed God had a call in his life, was planning to be in the pastorate. And I found out not long after that he graduated from, with his seminary degree that uh, somebody told me, you know, he's left the faith. He's no longer claiming to be a Christian. He's completely abandoned the faith. And I got to see him once. And I asked him, I said, what happened? What happened? How, how do you go from claiming Christ as your Savior to claiming that you have a call in your life to being in seminary to preparing to be a pastor and then all of a sudden um, turn around and deny Christ and, and deny the faith? How, how, what happened in your life that caused you to strip your faith away in Christ? What happened? And he said it all started by reading secular books of people who were attacking Scripture doing what Peter warns us will happen, taking things in Scripture that are hard to understand, things that are hard to, uh, to comprehend, things that aren't socially acceptable today, taking these things and then casting doubt on the integrity of Scripture. And he says, as I begin thinking about these things, as I begin reading these arguments by these non-believers attacking Scripture, he didn't use that language, but he said, I suddenly lost my faith in the integrity of the word of God. And he said, after I lost my faith in the integrity of God, it wasn't long before I didn't really have any reason to believe in Christ either. Because once you, once you uh, give up your, your belief in the words of Scripture, uh, your faith in Christ will, will follow quickly. Because what's the basis of your faith in Christ? Experience? Well, experience will fade. Everybody has experiences. But if your belief isn't founded in that the Bible is true from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelations, regardless of whether we understand it completely or not, we don't. Regardless of, of those hard things that Jesus said and those hard things that Scripture proclaims that the world castigates and thinks that isn't loving towards God, if you start picking it apart and taking this and throwing out that, you, you end up stripping your confidence in the whole thing. Because if one thing isn't worthy believing, the whole thing, well, why is the whole thing worthy of believing? So I think the best way to put what Peter is saying here is that a person that's remembering that Scripture. Remember, he told us that the reason we could believe in the second coming of Christ is because the Bible says so. Remember that. So I think what Peter's saying here is, look, hold on to your faith in the integrity of the Word of God. A person who is living in light of the fact that Jesus is coming, that everything's going to be destroyed, and yet the Word of God will stand, the truth will stand, is a person that holds on to their faith and he warns people that there will be people that take the hard sayings in Scripture, the, the hard to comprehend things in Scripture. They will take those and they will seek to instill doubt in your mind regarding it. Watch out for it. Because giving up your confidence in the Word of God is one step towards giving up your confidence in Christ. In some regards, this is freeing. I have to admit, in some regards, uh, it, it's, it's just really freeing that the Apostle Peter would admit that there are things in Scripture that are hard to swallow, that are hard to understand, that are hard to comprehend fully. 
And I believe that, you know, part of heaven for us is going to be knowledge. It's going to be a clearer understanding. And I believe that's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 13 where he writes this, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And then in verse 12, For now we see only a reflection in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. And ancient mirrors were polished metal. They didn't have the mirrors like we have today. That's a, that's a clear mirror view. Uh, it was polished metal, so it wasn't very clear. And that's what he's saying is right now we see um, as in a, looking at a polished metal, looking at a shiny car at your image. Now I know in part, he says, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Part of heaven is having a clearer understanding of the truth of Scripture that Scripture now proclaims that we, we have a hard time seeing it, reconciling it at times, that we can't fully comprehend heaven. Part of heaven is knowledge and clarity. So in preparation for our new dwelling place where righteousness and holiness and truth reign, prepare, prepare by holding on to Scripture don't let Satan rob you of your faith in it. I think there's another implication, while it's not his main point, I think another implication of him acknowledging that there are some hard-to-understand things in Scripture is the, is the point that there's room for disagreements. There's room for differences of opinions in regards to all kinds of things uh, in times there's room for us to have dialogue as brothers and sisters and disagree on certain things. There are certainly essential doctrines of the faith, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the second coming of Christ, Scripture. There are certain core essential doctrines of the Christian faith, but there's a whole lot of diversity or allowance for diversity in our lives regarding other things that Scripture seems to or seems not to say. Many churches have split over non-essential core doctrines, things that Paul wrote about that are hard to understand, predestination versus free will, women in ministry, the olive tree and Israel's future, which in Romans 11, Paul himself admits that it's a mystery even to him. And so the point is, is that there are room for us as brothers and sisters to, to view different things, to, and particularly when it comes to end times, but not excluding other hard-to-understand things in Scripture. But we stand unified on the core doctrines of the faith. We lock arms on those, and we don't allow our differences of opinions to create disunity among us. We have dialogue about it. It's healthy, good to have dialogue and healthy debates about it, but yet at the same time, we lock arms as brothers and sisters, holding to the integrity of Scripture and our faith in Scripture and holding to our faith in Christ, declaring He is coming back. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. So it's this third point. Believe in the Bible. Fourth, and lastly, there at the beginning of verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace 
and knowledge, knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Simply put forth, pursue our knowledge, our relationship with God. A person who is living in light of eternity, a person who is realizing and and living and making proper decisions in light of the fact that everything in this earth is going to burn and, and be destroyed, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to receive his own for all eternity, is a person who pursues their knowledge of God, who pursues their relationship with God. In heaven, we will have uninhibited relationship with God. Peter's saying, start developing it now. Some people spend their entire life pursuing knowledge of things that are going to end, things that are going to burn. Peter's saying there's no greater passion that a Christian should have in life than having a knowledge and more and a greater knowledge of their God. Richard Foster, in his book on spiritual disciplines, wrote this, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. It is easy to lose focus in the pursuit of legitimate, even good things, job, position, status, family, friends, security. These and many more can all too quickly become the center of attention. Paul put it this way, I count all things as lost compared to the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that there's nothing worth more than knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, and that everything that stands in the way of me being able to pursue a knowledge of God and have an intimate relationship with God must go. It's about priorities. It's about having the proper perspective and making the proper decisions in light of our eternal home, in light of what the future holds for us. In light of the temporal things that are going to burn, in light of the eternal things that will last. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I always tell them to make sure as as time goes on and as they build their families, as they get a home and as they get a job and as they have, Lord willing, children, I always tell them, make sure you keep your priorities straight. I always tell them that remember... um, that house that you live in is, is going to, to burn, is going to be destroyed. And that grass that people love to, to make perfect. I had a guy in England once ask me, what is it about America and their grass? <laughs> that, that, that yard that we focus so much looking so pristine that, that in a few months it's going to be covered with snow. I know we, we, we were to clean our houses, and I know we need to keep our yards looking fairly nice. But the point is, and the warning to these couples is, look, you can focus on the wrong things to the neglect of the right things, to the neglect of maintaining your relationship with your spouse, of developing a relationship with your children, of, uh, of discipling your children and, and, and your, your spouse and, and, and Spending your time on things that are of eternal nature, things that will bear fruit in the future, things that will last. We all have jobs. We all have duties. We all have things that we need to do in this life to maintain this life, to to be healthy and to to carry on day by day, but never forget that the, the temporal nature of these things of this world, there's one thing that's eternal, and that's the souls of men and women. And we will all face our Creator one day. And the message here is may we all live our lives in such a manner that we look forward to that day when our Father comes. May we look forward to the day when Christ comes and righteousness and holiness and joy and peace and health will reign. 
Thank God for a new heavens and a new earth. Thank God that this world is not our eternal home. And Peter says, live in light of that fact. Church history has long proclaimed that not long after Peter wrote his final words here in 2 Peter that he uh, was arrested, imprisoned, uh, and eventually actually crucified upside down by, under the orders of Emperor Nero. Not in Scripture, we don't know that to be for certain, but it sure would uh, fit in, in regards to the times that he was living in. We do know that many, there were many martyrs during his time for the Christian faith in the Roman Empire. It also would fit well with what Jesus said to Peter in John 21. In John 21, you remember Jesus had asked Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter, with, just with greater intensity, kept saying, yes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And, and then Jesus said this to, to Peter. He said this, verily, truly I say to you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. <laughs> I, I find that rather comical. Uh, did Jesus mean that to be a motivational speech? Uh, Peter, you're, you're going to die for me. So follow me. What Jesus was saying, Peter, if you truly love me, you'll follow me to the cross. If you truly love me, you'll realize that I didn't, I didn't save you to, you didn't win the golden ticket in being picked a disciple. You see, remember, the disciples, they thought, boy, we, we've got the golden ticket here. The Messiah is come, and he's going to militarily take down the Roman Empire, and we're going to share in his glory on this earth. And part of their progression in their spiritual maturity was getting to the place to where that they realized, yeah, that's not exactly it. That we will share in his glory, but sharing in his glory isn't until we get to heaven. But by the end of this letter that Peter wrote, we see that he got it. The very last words that we have recorded that he ever wrote says, to him be glory both now and forever. Peter had gotten to the place in his relationship with God that he loved God so much that whatever it took, whatever it took for him to bring glory and honor to God, the God that he loved, the God that he would be spending eternity all with, whatever it took, even if it meant dying, a physical death, being martyred, crucified upside down, whatever it took, it was well worth it. Why? Because he had an eternal perspective. He knew that this world was temporal. He knew the pain of this world, the agony of this world was temporal. And he longed for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness and holiness and truth and goodness dwell. Today we are commemorating the fact that we are entering into Holy Week by celebrating communion together. I wanted to do this because I realized that a lot of our church folks are going to be gone for Good Friday, and I think it's an important part of preparing our hearts to experience Easter, and so we wanted to do that this morning. Communion is not just about reflecting about 
the death of Christ, it's also reflecting on the fact that he's called us to be willing to die for him. Both die in regards to our selfish ambitions and living solely for ourselves here on earth, but also be willing to die should God ever require that. Here on earth, physically die as a martyr for Christ. To be willing to communicate to him that I will follow you, God. What Jason read, the passage in regards to the crowd, remember it said, it said the Pharisees thought it looked like the whole world were worshiping Jesus. Uh, it looked like none of the world within a week was worshiping Jesus. They too thought that the Messiah had come and glory here was going to be them, for them here on this earth. But as soon as they realized Jesus died, he's calling us to die with him. Yeah, that's not what I'm interested in. And so as Christians, we acknowledge that we will receive glory. We will share in his glory in heaven. There will be a time of bliss and happiness and joy and rewards. But for now, we are following Christ all the way to the cross. If you're a Christian today, we invite you to participate in communion. If you're not, the message every week is place your faith in Christ. Cry out to Christ. Cry out for mercy. He's paid the penalty of your sins. He loves you. The reason he hasn't come back now yet is because of you. It's because of you. Repent. Place your faith in Christ. Receive the free gift of salvation. Do it today. And please, you're welcome to participate in communion. If you're not ready for that, please let the communion pass you by. Let's prepare our hearts in prayer and as the worship bands comes up. Father God, we praise you. We love you. We thank you, God, for the sacrifice of Christ as we enter Holy Week, Lord, remembering, Father, what it cost you, what it cost you to pay for the penalty of, of, of my sin, God, what it cost you to offer me eternal security. My trust, God, is not in my performance. It's not in my past. It's not in my present. It's not in my future. My trust is solely in the crucified work of Jesus Christ who died for my sins, whose blood has washed me white as snow, and who offers this free gift of salvation to anybody who will become. Father, prepare our hearts. May we repent of any known sin. And may we be prepared to receive communion with both an attitude of gratitude for what you've done, but an attitude of committing to live with an eternal perspective in this life. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Wellspring Church. For more information about Wellspring, please visit wellspringcc.org.